instance, increasing study abroad participation rates is primarily about workforce development and having our students be better prepared to serve the communities that we serve, whether that be local, state, national, or international. It gives us that opportunity then to relay and, and for have these students know about the world so that when they, when they do solve problems, they can do it with a more sophisticated framework. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Stride's inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I am so excited about today's episode. Today, we'll be talking about education abroad at public universities. I am excited to be joined by my friend, Dr. Kelly Newland. Kelly is the Director of Global Learning at Washington State University. Prior to joining Washington State, Kelly held leadership positions at The Ohio State University, Capital University, and Indiana University. Kelly received her PhD in agricultural education from The Ohio State University. You do not want to miss this episode. Kelly, welcome. Thank you for being here. It is great to be here this morning, Zach. Thanks so much for uh, giving me this platform to tell the story. Absolutely. Could you start by describing your current role at Washington State University to us? Of course. So I am what they call here the director of global learning. Global learning is a strategic term here because we do study abroad work in this office, but we also do work with badges. We have a global leadership certificate, which some might call a mini minor. We also do work with a lot of other volunteer positions with students. We will help in classroom situations if needed. So it goes beyond just study abroad, like so uh, so many other offices that do this work. Um, and so that's why we use that name, and we based it on the AACMU values rubric for global learning. So I do a little bit of everything from teaching class to risk management, outreach, support, you name it. That's great. Yeah, thank you for that. Can you share a little bit about the education abroad ecosystem at Washington State? Yeah, so we have, um, of course, the, the way the ecosystem is set up, I, you know, I, I think of a little bit of a swamp. You know, a swamp is sort of the kidneys of the ecosystem and everything. But really then what the work we do is, is we take the ideas and sort of wishes of faculty across the university and ever increasingly, even staff, like as we work with, for instance, housing and, and putting together study abroad experiences for students based on living experiences, they sort of come through our office in terms of making their dreams a reality. So, and I say dreams because a lot of these ideas are sort of passion projects of faculty who maybe had had an experience abroad themselves, or maybe they have research partners abroad and they want to create fact-led programs, for instance, for students here. The other side of it though, the other inflow into our ecosystem, of course, are providers like World Strides. We have a number of programs in that way, and then also partnerships from other universities. So we consider ourselves a bit of a microcosm of the university, but then also this outreach arm that interconnects with a lot of stakeholders, partners, um, and people who make the intercultural dream come alive. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Kelly, you are passionate about the the access versus excellence argument for public universities. Could you share a little bit about what that is for our listeners and tell us what 
drives this passion within you? Yeah. So I grew up in Appalachian, Ohio. So if anybody is familiar with that area down in southeastern Ohio, where I grew up washing things and pushing things, you know, just the language of it all being very close to West Virginia, but with that accent. But in that region of Ohio, uh, there's a lot of economic depression. Um, if you've ever read like Hillbilly Elegy, for instance, because when the coal mine sort of dried up, but then it, it became sort of a hotbed for prescription drug abuse and those types of things. So really then going to Ohio State, there was this whole confluence of, for me because my school district was the first in Ohio to ever declare bankruptcy, um, a public funded institution. Um, so that became this really interesting thing of that as universities started to increase admission standards, you know, there's a positive side of that, which is bringing in students who are going to thrive in the university system. But then also the same system that is funding that university, desperately funding people from different regions of Ohio based on what is still unconstitutional funding of public education that gets students to that stage. So really, in my mind, it's not necessarily access versus excellence. It's how do you do them both at the same time, right? And how do you ensure that the underserved communities whether that be because of economic depression or because of race, ethnicity, gender, whatever it might be, how do you level the playing field or how do you set yourself up to measure and encourage excellence among all students where they're coming from? So that might mean changing the definition of excellence, you know, forever, you know, it's one of the greatest things about COVID is that post-COVID, standardized tests aren't being used as much. Now, I used to be an admissions professional and really defend the use of tests because every school teaches differently. They might be more expensive, they might be higher ranked, but they may not teach as well. So you need some grand instrument that is going to validate and sort of equalize everything. But, you know, like as we've all come to find out, sometimes those tests are very biased in terms of the type of knowledge they're measuring. And there aren't as many tests that actually sort of, or there's not a lot of research that validates the success of a student at the college or university level based on those scores. But that has been a major measurement um, in determining basically access as well as excellence based on U.S. News and World Report. What are your average scores? Those types of things. So there's a place for all of that, but I think it needs to be in context with a lot more qualitative understanding of students in the world and the universities and what they give. Really, for me, it, it is all about changing the definition of excellence and understanding that access is part of that excellence. So what would you say, Kelly, are, are some you know, common misconceptions of, of public universities? And how would you like to see the narrative around public institutions evolve? Public universities, I think oftentimes sort of people think because you're not paying as much, you're not getting as much uh, because you get what you pay for. But presumably, the state is also pitching in, at least for in-state students, um, to reduce that cost. So it's not really that much cheaper. It's just taxpayer dollars at work. But at this point in history, though, it's a lot of public universities are down to like 10 or 15 percent state funding. So they're really operating financially as private universities in a lot of ways. But the thing is, is that public universities are typically large uh, because they're serving a broader population. And so there's different pockets of people. So there are 
I would argue that at public universities, there are students every bit as capable and prepared for college and going into the world as any Ivy League student, but also you're going to have students who have that potential, but haven't met that yet um, within the system. And the public university system is built to sort of bring that out in people uh, in a lot of ways. So it's, there are misconceptions that, yeah, it's maybe like the least expensive place to go or that it's sort of like the low bar, like everybody, like a backup school sort of a thing. But really, in reality, it's, there's economy of scale in these large universities. We will tell students, for instance, like, okay, so a small university couldn't do this, but, you know, here at WSU, we have the nation's only grizzly bear research center. Uh, so come on by and check out the bears. Um, we have some really amazing other types of labs, and we're well known, for instance, from the U.S. Department of Agriculture having the most grants for the production of new foods and the research in how to more sustainably and um, efficiently produce you know, apples, for instance, which is a global commodity that's traded and part of the world economy. And then that becomes why it's so important for students to who come to public universities, in my mind, to then study abroad is because our place is so important, not just public universities, but land-grant universities in particular are my passion. Some people, I, there is, it is problematic to some degree because land-grant has also been called land-grab because a lot of these universities were built on money and funds generated through stealing native lands, especially in the Northwest Territory. So I would like to acknowledge that, that that is a piece of this. But the other side of um, the sort of the positive side of land grant universities is that when they were created, it was immediately after the Civil War when there were no real public universities. It was only the wealthy who went to college. They maybe studied religion or Latin. There was no real system for developing knowledge that improved the daily life of people. So that's why there are so many land grant universities that still have A&M in the name. Uh, because it stood for agriculture and mechanics, which you could probably understand in 1870 when all of a lot of these universities were founded, um, that was the common science that needed to be developed and that we needed people trained in. So, but that expanded pretty quickly from that. Two purposes of land grant universities were to train the common man to be able to improve the life and quality of life for people. And what evolved out of that and what it really is today is that it represents having three functions. So every one of our faculty members um, at every land grant university will have three parts to their position and it will be education and teaching, which is what most other universities is the only thing people have to do, right? In, in terms of faculty. At land grant universities, they also have a responsibility for research, like developing new knowledge, but then also outreach, finding ways to take that information out into the world and to improve the daily life of people. That I think is really important within university setting and I think when you start to see that angle of everything, you start then to realize this mission, like so whether you're a business student, an English student, whatever else it might be, a lot of times these faculty are not just dealing with students who are 100% of their time, like or the students aren't working with faculty who 100% of their time are just digging in and reading novels or um, doing and, and being prepared to teach other people's work. They are constantly developing that work, furthering it, but then also taking it and putting it into a format that is easily digestible by the rest of the world. Um, so it's it, it creates that sort of community here that what we're doing is not just for ourselves, but it, it's for improving the world. Here, here. Yeah, well said. 
Uh, so shifting our, our conversation a little bit, how would you say the mission and values of a public institution, and in particular a land-grant institution, intersects with goals such as internationalization or efforts to increase study abroad participation rates? Yeah, for sure. Actually, so what, if depending on our listeners today, um, they may or may not realize that there is this really great process that universities can go through, which is called the ACE Internationalization Lab. And Washington State University is just engaging in that. Um, And what it is, is it's essentially a two-year process of really digging in and saying, where are we? You know, is globalization and internationalization even mentioned in the university goals? How many classes have a learning outcome on the syllabus that says anything about internationalization and such? But as I was just describing, sort of the mission of our university having outreach and developing new knowledge and getting it out into the world, um, that is great for workforce development, for instance, for the state of Washington, for the United States, getting these people out into the world who've had this background and knowledge. But it's also important on a global scale, but for two reasons, inbound and outbound. So in terms of getting that information out there or some of the research that we're doing, improving the lives of people on a global scale, Uh, is important. But also the fact that then our students are going out into the world knowing about the world. So uh, we are bringing in international scholars. We are ensuring that students are taught in class, like environmental science, you know, like nature sees no borders. You know, these are things on a map or, you know, GPS. They are things that, you know, animals or trees see. So going out into the world and understanding those perspectives, understanding that interconnectedness, is really quite important. So in terms of Washington State and the universities I've worked for, the goal of, for instance, increasing study abroad participation rates is primarily about workforce development and having our students be better prepared to serve the communities that we serve, whether that be local, state, national, or international. Uh, And really then our students become ambassadors to the world, talking about the United States, but also being a great coog, you know, like we want people around the world to know how wonderful coogs are, the Washington State coogs. But at the same time, it, it gives us that opportunity then to relay and, and for have these students know about the world so that then they, when they do solve problems, they can do it with a more sophisticated framework. In a previous life, I worked at the University of Connecticut. I live in Connecticut now, so you know, I have some experience at a Langer institution. I just truly admire mm-hmm. the mission of what they do. And, and so I'm just loving, loving this conversation mm-hmm. today. And so the student body served by a land-grant institution is, is, as you've already said, Kelly, is wide and it's diverse. It includes local students from the area, includes students from around the nation oftentimes, international students, transfer students, as well as adult learners. How do you approach designing programs for this audience with the goal of improving cultural intelligence in mind? Right. That is a really good question. And um I'm not so far out from my dissertation work. You mentioned I got my doctorate at Ohio State in agricultural and extension education. Um, so no wonder I'm so passionate about the land grant, right? So, but really the research I did though was in international development. But again, I twisted it one more time to say it was the research of the development of students, international competencies they study abroad. So when you talk about such a, a diverse group of students coming in and how do we plan and design programs, you know, really in the reality of everyday life, a lot of it is on our faculty. But um, when we have a chance, though, to interact and to provide feedback and workshops, which is something that we are building here, it is something I 
had developed at Ohio State and now post-COVID, you know, we're, we're working on here at Washington State, is working with faculty so that they understand. Right? So number one, they're just aware of global learning outcomes and so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, providing resources and support that stretch across a diverse group of students is really important. The other thing is, is to offer a diverse array of programs. So we love our partners like World Strides um, and within that ISA and Teen, but also working with faculty to create shorter term programs that are, for instance, maybe embedded into the curriculum and, for instance, meet one of the requirements to graduate within a certain major. Having those types of courses which fit in for students who maybe can't study abroad for a full semester, um, whether that be because of money, responsibilities, tightness and curriculum, those types of things. So they do maybe a faculty-led program that is more tailor-made for that specific major. So whether it be adult learners and otherwise, it's, you know, what some of my favorite programs we do are for EMBA and online MBA students who have, you know, a week to get away from the office and go out and learn and have to really engage in that. So um, you juxtapose that against um, a group of, for instance, I used to lead a lot of first-year study abroad programs at Ohio State, where we would go abroad in December of freshman year. It's a lot of fun, though, and actually adds a lot of adventure to the job to have those different populations. You know, I think the the scale of a of a public institution and a land grant institution, as you said, you know, really does provide a lot of space. I think for for innovation and, and new program designs and program types like that. So I think you you articulated that extremely well. So so thank you for that. And so Kelly, I know that your research and your work in the past has focused in part on bringing structure to the student development process using student organizations and study abroad. Tell us about your successes in this area, uh, and is there a moment or outcome of which you are particularly proud? I have really enjoyed getting to know about student development. So um, for those of you who don't know student development, it's very much like a a very um, snippet sort of segment of um, young adult development. So uh, when when you go through, for instance, a higher education or student affairs graduate level program, you're essentially looking for the most part at the student at human development from the ages of like 18 to 22, right? Um, or, you know, plus or minus a little bit. So you're really digging into that and trying to decide, you know, for instance, are we trying to help these students um, who come to us potentially just past a stage where um, they are being told everything that they need to do? Um, everything that they sort of believe in in life is based around people who they have been around and they are not really developing much original thought. You know, it's these people around me have these political views. So do I. These people around me um, did things this way. So am I. Right. So when they come to college, the goal is then to take them from that level of you know, appreciating that, but then also exploring for themselves what they are truly interested in, what they sort of how they would kind of um, write their own life story um, from that point. And when students come to college, oftentimes it's one of their first times where they've really had some distance um, from that sort of influence in their life. So study abroad and then student organizations are great tools to help students recognize those types of things. So within student organizations, students are practicing their life. You know, there would be times at Ohio State where students would get really wrapped up and really emotional about certain things maybe going wrong. And I would have to sit them down and just sort of remind them hey, this is practice. 
this doesn't go on your resume. Nobody is going to remember this next week, let alone three years from now when you're in a job interview. But you will have a good story to tell as long as you tailor it the right way. Like if you really screwed something up, you know, use it as a mea culpa. You know, like start thinking through what you can learn from this and go on and taking the rest of the time you have to prove that you've learned from this and are practicing. Kolb's experiential learning model is, of course, like my favorite. A lot of people who work with experiential learning, it's because it's simple and that students have an experience. They reflect on that experience to sort of become conscious of what they've learned from that experience or what they think about that experience. You know, they maybe have some learning me- mechanism of some sort where they're, they're given more structure to what they know and they go back out in the world and practice that again and keep cycling through that again and again and again in terms of having that experiential learning. Well, study abroad, if you design it right, is that again and again and again every day. So when I lead, especially for short-term study abroad programs, we will have nightly reflections. Anything as simple as rosebud and thorn, where everybody shares the rose, the highlight of the day, the bud, something they've learned that they think might emerge, or and then a thorn, something that like I really challenged them, for instance. So that's one mechanism I might use then like for the sake of like student organizations as well as study abroad. And then another tool I really love is Five Whys. So which really digs into that and gets and helps into the design and, and utilizing these structures of student involvement. And that is for students to sort of tackle a question that they have or something they've been struggling with. All of those types of activities and through doing things like study abroad or becoming involved as a student in experiential learning, it gives you a place and a platform to do that type of thought process. Absolutely. As you know, public universities provide access to so many students. It's truly impressive to look at the sheer numbers that a globally centered office serves. You know, in many cases, it's, it's over thousands of students a year. How can we keep a human element in these services, knowing that each of our students has a unique set of needs and goals? Yeah, such a great question and also something that we constantly have to center and remind ourselves of a lot of times because, you know, in this world, especially sort of post-COVID and study abroad, where we continuously are trying to do more with less, pre-COVID, it was this way as well um, at most universities, is, you know, efficiency. How do we better build in our systems? Are we using the best student database system? Are we building in the right triggers um, when we use Teradata. So are we building in the right triggers um, to hit um, students in terms of making sure that they get the information they need at the time in which they need it? You know, and we can end up getting carried away with that in terms of then letting all of our focus be, do we have the system built, you know, to like, have we built our AI version of a study abroad advisor uh, sort of a thing? But really, it's every student is such an individual. It does come back down to then making sure you provide great opportunities for advising in the study abroad office. You know, like, so how do you get students in? How do you bring them to the office? Or how do you encourage them to come on Zoom to schedule an appointment for that one-on-one advising? How do you make it so that students will always see a human face no matter what, even from regional campuses because large public universities have regional campuses. So how can you personalize that experience in study abroad? And really, it's all about going back to the land grant system, training the trainers, 
Um, so a big piece of um, study abroad and land grant is extension people. So some people from um, communities that intersect with 4-H um, will know that very well. But other communities, it could be urban gardening and having faculty who, for instance, help train master gardeners, for instance. But that is this whole concept of the university training trainers. So one of the things we try to do here is really support advisors. So that can be all types of academic advisors. It can be financial aid advisors, whether they are here on campus or a regional campus, or it can end up being parents, um, but really working with people who can put a human face with that. And if we can't do it for everyone, which we can't, we have about 700 students who study abroad, but then maybe like four or 500 who will maybe intersect with our office each year beyond that for um, having an interest in study abroad or doing outreach fairs and those types of things across the university, but always having sort of a positive, friendly face on study abroad and always presenting this attitude that you can do it. Um, it may take more work. We can connect you with the resources because we've trained these trainers out there and they understand and can help you make study abroad a reality. What is something you wish more people in education abroad understood about global education in the context of a large public university? What challenges must we overcome? And what is unique and special about land-grant institutions? I think sometimes there is this sort of idea that because we are larger, there's magic money that comes about or that we can fund things by maybe changing the budget line. And there's you know some other budget line we can switch things to. Um, it's not that necessarily. We, we have to be just as nimble. Also, there are sometimes additional limitations to the way that we spend money or have access to money because then there are, for instance, Washington has these wonderful things called the Washington Administrative Code um, or the WAC, um, which is then a way in which they keep everything balanced across the state in terms of employee benefits and things like that. So we don't have, for instance, the benefit of staff, for instance, taking master's level courses at the university as a staff benefit. Um, and that's because not all state employees in the state of Washington have that as a benefit. There are different nuances and roles and such that come into play that sometimes are harder to navigate than people would realize. But at the same time, there's a lot of beauty. And like you're saying about the land grant mission and study abroad, and that when you're designing, for instance, faculty-led programs, or you're helping sort of tailor or recommend programs to take part in through a provider program or through exchange with students, there's a broader mission in the selection of courses in the catalog that you offer to students in that we are building students for that global workforce who are going to be able to go out into the world and solve big problems. Um, we aren't just looking for instance, for like a list of five learning outcomes that would be the same as they were here on, on campus for a course we are doing it with the intent that these students are going to be able to support in a positive, socially justice way, these issues across the world. And that is the entire mission of a land-grant university. Um, and I'm just really proud to work in that system. You know, I would, when I think about your background, you know, you have a, a PhD in, in agricultural edu education, mm -hmm. which is distinct for our field. And so <laughs> I would be remiss for not asking you about agriculture students instead of your brother. Yeah. 
So, you know, in, in your view, what are some of the barriers to, to ag majors who want to study abroad? And how could we as a field get more of those students on planes and, and away from our campuses for a little bit? Right. Well, I, I thank you for asking that question, because I think there's so many different ways of talking about this. So for one thing, agriculture majors at universities are oftentimes very diverse from their backgrounds. So oftentimes students who are, for instance, pre-vet will be ag majors at land-grant universities, and land-grant universities are the primary ones that have ag. So they might be suburban and more interested in veterinary medicine for the sake of cats and dogs, but they are in an animal science major because that's what's going to best prepare them for going on to vet school. Um, Or there's food science majors who are going to work for companies like Procter & Gamble, Nestle, all of the big ones. Or they're going to be students in like a turf grass science major who might end up managing turf for the English Premier League someday, right? So the first thing I want to do is dispel the myth that all ag students are from rural areas and the same and that sort of thing. But once we do, though, dig into, like, let's say that traditional ag major who's maybe involved in agricultural production or in one of the support fields for that, whether that be economics or sales or engineering, it's important to realize what limitations those students have because chances are if they want to go into that and they're majoring in that rather than chemistry or something as a means of going into that field, um, they may have requirements during the summer in which they need to take care of. Um, So for instance, ag engineering students at Ohio State, like there was no way you could have a program that was all May. The opportunity cost, you know, students were making more than I make now in a month's time on an internship. So for them to study abroad, not only was it going to cost them maybe like $5,000, but they were going to lose $5,000 in that process of doing that. So the opportunity cost was in $10,000 to make that happen. So paying attention to the timing and the length of time. Also, potentially, one of the things that works really well in these situations is to have faculty-led programs that actually then meet graduation requirements within the major or teach some sort of either knowledge, skill, or attitude related to that field. So really curriculum integrated opportunities for students that are potentially even attached to a semester length class and that help them then actually do something. Like so a lot of these programs too when we go abroad are very experiential. I ended up getting the opportunity to lead students on seven continents because of my role at Ohio State being the director of study abroad programs for agriculture and natural resources. So yes, Antarctica, it was fascinating with all the penguins and seals and whales. And um, it was more of an environmental science class. Um, Fabulously interesting in terms of politics and glaciology and who owns what. Nobody owns Antarctica, but really, does nobody? Yeah. So it was a really fascinating experience. But yeah, so having those opportunities that you really design strategically to reduce all of the barriers what is the biggest challenge you're, you're facing at work right now, and how are you tackling it? Okay, so money and not well. Next question. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> no, I, it just <laughs> in general, yes, it is. It's funding, but not just funding for the sake of funding, but really balancing and strategizing, um, spending time then writing grants and trying to be entrepreneurial so that we can do some of these things that we have goals of doing. And not thinking about things as sort of a deficit mindset, but an opportunity mindset. You know, I think just saying money, yeah, is a definitely a deficit mindset. But we have all of these dreams and ideas and things that we want to do to improve 
the student experience at Washington State University in terms of intercultural development. And so we are spending a lot of time and resources in terms of um, staff time, for instance, applying for grants or finding ways or partnerships um, to actually make these things happen without just paying out ourselves. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been having a lot of conversations with the folks about their their grant writing strategy, grant writing strategy in education abroad, which I feel like is a, a relatively new development. This year, Kelly, we are celebrating our 55th anniversary here at World Strides by collecting the life-changing moments of participants on our programs, past and present. It's been a lot of fun to read everyone's stories, and I would love to ask you about yours. When you were having your international experiences, what was your life-changing moment? You know, it's really kind of funny because I didn't necessarily go to college thinking like study abroad, right? But so I went to the Ohio State University as actually a minority student being Appalachian. And I was assigned an advisor who was different than all of my peers because at that time at Ohio State, you were sent directly to a major advisor. So I was really confused why I had this generalized advisor and went off to go find her office so that I could say, like, can I be assigned to somebody specifically within my major? Like, you know, like, no, nothing against you, but I would really love to just be like the rest of the, the people in my dorm, which was an ag dorm and, and whatever else. So I set off across campus to go find her um, and got lost. So, but at the street corner, now I know at like that exact street corner and where I must have been, um, I saw a building that had a sign on it that said study abroad. And at the time, I was also sort of rushing a local ag sorority. And one of the older members in that sorority had studied abroad that summer before. So I thought, hmm, if I go in there and pretend like I'm interested in that program in Czechoslovakia, right? So this was 1994. So um, all the brochures actually said Czechoslovakia. They hadn't changed them yet. Um, because, so, so I go in and I talk to this woman who just has this fiery red hair and is just like, yes, you need to do this. It's wonderful. Sign up. You know, And I left that meeting having signed up to study abroad in the Czech Republic. Think about like, and I then I was nervous as I'll get out because then I had to walk back to my dorm room, pick up the phone because that was before cell phones and call my dad and say, hey, you know that heifer we bought for my last year of eligibility showing at the county fair? I, I think I just signed up to go to Czechoslovakia. So I can't go to the fair. Like, can my sister show my heifer for me? And so it became this big decision of the Czech Republic or a county fair. Um, and it was a tough decision for me at that time, right? So I studied abroad. Um, I went to the Czech Republic. And uh, on that program, then I ended up making friends with a university ambassador, one of the tour guides for Ohio State, who just said, Kelly, you've got to do this. You would be a perfect match to do these tours and whatever else. And so I came back and did that and fell in love with higher education administration so the first seven years of my career were in admissions, and then I switched over to study abroad just through happenstance. Somebody was leaving the office, and I, as part of my grad program, had asked to go on a study abroad program. And my boss said, like, how about a win-win? How about you lead a study abroad program for me that I'm having trouble finding someone to do? Okay, great. So, I mean, the rest is history after that, and it, it was the same program I did as like after my freshman year at Ohio State as well. So a lot just goes back to that moment of having this happened into that office. And then that woman with the fiery red hair, her name is Grace Johnson, and she became my boss. And she was director of study abroad at Ohio State for 25 years. And she recently retired and is off doing being an artist in residence um, on sort of like a second life in Mexico. And I, I just love her to death. 
my journey was a little bit twisted, but at the same time, I've always worked for in higher education since my college graduation, and with the exception of one year for large state public universities. And most of that time has been with land grants. Um, and I, I don't know that I would find myself working outside of a land grant or at least supporting land grant universities at this point in my career, because I, I so strongly believe in that mission. I, I love your story. Uh, County Fair or Czech Republic? That's gonna that's what's gonna stick with me for the rest I, of the yeah. day. So, so thank you for sharing <laughs> that with us, Kelly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You got it. Uh, you got it. Um, and so for my final question, I just have one more for you, my friend. As you think about education abroad in, uh, in 2023, what makes you hopeful? Uh, what makes me hopeful is the world is reopened. I, mean, I think as they were saying last week at the, the national meeting for senior international officers or AIEA, we're not past COVID, but we're post COVID or something along those lines where we're just learning to deal with it now. We're finally at that point um, in this whole process. And we are seeing more and more students go abroad. We're seeing students have different personalities and different needs, but study abroad is still there to meet them. So I'm really excited to see our students traveling across the world, um, to some degree being interested in a more diverse array of places and destinations for study abroad, as well as faculty really thinking through, what do I want to do with my career? Uh, and how can I be strategic about having the best experiences for my students? and them being interested in providing study abroad opportunities as well. Well, I, I can't imagine a better place to end it than right there. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Kelly Newland from Washington State University, for, for your expertise and for your time today. It's been truly a pleasure having this conversation with you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I am your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Please subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.